The following program is brought to you by Blood, Sweat, Tears, and listeners like you. To support this show and all of the shows within Twib Nation, consider becoming a subscriber of our pay service, The Twibularity, at twib.me forward slash subscribe. That's twib.me forward slash subscribe. Or you can give a one-time donation at donate.twib.me. That's donate.twib.me. We've all learned how important media is and who tells our stories. Help us be the media that you want to hear and that the media is afraid to hear. It's kind of hard to listen to yourself become irrelevant. You are now listening to Twib FM. Real talk, real awesome. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Tonight we have an amazing show. We have a guest, um, a panel of guests talking about Asian representation in media. The name of our podcast is Asians in Media. So if you're listening live with us, you can use the hashtag BGM podcast. That puts you in the feed with everyone else um, we are, where you can ask questions, you can leave comments. Also, you can give us a call here at TWIB. The studio number is 718-404-9320. Again, it's 718-404-9320. Um, so our guest is an amazing panel, as I mentioned before. We have Najela Ray, Keith Chow, Christine Hassel, and John, if you don't mind clarifying how to pronounce your last name. Sway. Sway. And John Sway. Um, and Alice Wong. And Christine Hassel is my special guest co-host. So before I introduce all of our panel and um, get to our questions, um, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up um, some of the events surrounding getting our panel together. Um, I just want to say, first and foremost, um, this idea for the Asians in Media podcast I thought was pretty phenomenal. Christine Hassel uh, had emailed me and said we should do an Asians in Media uh, podcast, and I thought that that was brilliant. Um, so I gathered a panel of folks that I thought would be ideal for the show, and many of these folks are people that I know that have been supporters of BGN. Um, Keith Chow has been very instrumental in um, cross-promoting BGN, participating in live tweeting with us. I've been on his podcast many times. Um, so I naturally thought to bring him as well because he and I work in the same spaces. Um, also, uh, Alice Wong, who I have on the podcast, has worked with BGN on a lot of live tweets, and we did an Orphan Black podcast uh, tweet uh, with Geek Soul Brother. Um, so it just made sense to have her on. And uh, John Sway, I did a review uh, about his comic, Run, Love, Kill, and I really wanted to bring on someone um, that's got some comic book experience, and he's a creator, and he's got a woman of color protagonist. Um, so it made sense to bring him on. Um, and then the other guest, uh, I thought that this person would be good because they've done a lot of work in social media um, that's sort of crossed over into mainstream and, uh, you know, controversial, yes, but also um, has made some impacts with uh, uh, late night talk show hosts and, and, and things of that nature and trending hashtags. 
So I, I was completely oblivious that um, this person had offended a lot of people on social media. Um, so I just want to say I apologize uh, to everyone that noticed that this person was going to be potential guests on the podcast. Um, in no way had I ever intended to have somebody on that was offensive, um, specifically to um, women of color and black women. Um, so I, I just want to say I apologize for that. And um, also, it was brought to my attention that the panel was not diverse enough. Uh, so that was an oversight, and I take 100% ownership of that. So I will definitely um, work to be more cognizant of these things and, um, you know, lesson learned. I, I think it's good to have these moments where you you see that there are things that you've made mistakes on and you learn from them and you, you get a little bit of wisdom there. And, and you move on. So, uh, thanks guys for pointing that out, really. And, uh, I'll learn to vet the guests a little bit better the next time around. Um, so thanks guys for tuning in. I am going to get to our bios and I want to make just a couple of more announcements. Uh, this weekend I will be in Austin, Texas for Blogging Wall Brown Conference. That is June 19th and the 20th. Really super excited. Partnering up with AT&T, they have a great inspiration mobility campaign. So uh, the inspiration mobility hashtag, I'll be using that this weekend. So check it out. If you're in Austin, I'd love to meet you. If you're going to be at the Blogging Wall Brown Conference, I um, would love to get an opportunity to chat with you and network with you. I've been wanting to go to this conference for so long, and I'm so thrilled uh, to have this opportunity courtesy of AT&T. So thanks again to the guys at AT&T, and uh, I will see you in Austin next weekend. Uh, there will not be a podcast next Sunday, by the way, and we will resume uh, the following Sunday after that. And um, just quick, I always like to ask that you support us. You do that all of the time through social media, through word of mouth. But we also like to get your financial support as well. So you can go to the Black Girl Nerds website, and on the right sidebar, we have a donate PayPal button where you can donate there. There's also blog ads if you elect to purchase ad space. You can advertise your webcomic. You can advertise your latest book. If you've got a film coming out, take the opportunity and, and check out what we have to offer you on blog ads. And finally, we have merchandise on Zazzle.com. Zazzle.com forward slash blurredgasm is the link. And it's there where you can purchase a lot of merchandise. We've got shirts. We've got coffee mugs. Uh, so you can rock all your BGN swag at your next convention or your next outing and brag to all your friends about Black Girl Nerds. Um, so thank you all who have supported us over the years and continue to do so each and every day. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so I am going to introduce each of our guest panelists, and then we're going to get to our questions. Um, so Najela Ray is the host of Twib After Dark and Twib FM, journalist and BBW adult web model and PSO, straddling the line between nerd culture, identity politics, and sexual, revo sexual revolution, Najela Ray navigates di difficult digital spaces. Her blog, BlasianBitch.com, celebrates and explores sexuality from a black and Asian perspective. She strives to make a sex-positive space where people of all races, 
gender identities, and sexual preferences can have their voice heard in the adult industry and beyond. Najela's writing can be found on exojane.com, racebending.com, ladiesnight.com, lucasblack, racialicious, twib.fm, as well as wenerdhard.com. And Najela has been quoted and featured in Mashable, The Pacific Standard, Bustle, Ebony, and HuffPo UK. Keith Chow, originally from Virginia, and is 757, (laughs) represent. Keith Chow is the founder of Nerds of Color, a website that looks at pop culture with a different perspective. And he hosts the video podcast, Hard Nerds of Color, Life on YouTube. He's also the co-editor of the Asian American Comics Anthology's Secret Identities and Shattered. Keith can also be found in three different spaces on Twitter, at Nerds of Color for Nerd Stuff, at SI Universe for Asian Americans and Comics, and at the underscore real underscore chow for everything else. Christine Hassel, who's also our guest co-host, is a first-generation Filipino-American who lives in Seattle. When she is not tweeting for Geek Girl Con, she enjoys board games, RPGs, film scores, and voraciously consuming Western media to critically analyze and track diversity and its lack thereof. She aspires to be a firebender in all things Avatar, airbender, not Cameron, (laughs) and she wishes she had a replicator to make uh, collages for her friends, but she'd settle for Pandaria that sold Marinitos. She's currently gathering family histories for a book of short stories based on her mother's life and what it is like to be raised as a feminist Filipina. Christine is currently the manager of the social media and community outreach for the Seattle-based nonprofit Geek Girl Con. She has been with them since 2011, attending the first convention and quickly joined their all-volunteer staff. And she's also the president at the board of Geek Girl Con. John Sway is a comic book writer who has been featured in Secret Identities, an Asian, Asian American superhero anthology, and Comic Book Tattoo. And he is the co-creator and writer of Run, Love, Kill, published by Image Comics. And finally, Alice Wong is an unrepentant night owl and obscene consumer of TV, food, and news. My kind of girl, according to her Twitter bio. She's also a contributor to the Nerds of Color and currently is a project coordinator and founder of the Disability Visibility Project, a community partnership with StoryCorps. Her daytime work involves research and disability policy. Thank you all so much for coming on tonight's show. So, all right, um, I want to talk, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about different topics and segments. So the first topic I want to bring up is whitewashing of Asian characters. There's been a lot of controversy in the news as of late. And um, I want to start with Keith on this because Keith was recently on Huffington Post Live and then you were on another news program, which you can tell us in a moment where you were on. Um, but I want to talk about the whitewashing uh, that happened with Cameron Crowe's movie Aloha. Um, so you were on Huffington Post Live, Keith, uh, about last week or a couple of weeks discussing this. What was your reaction towards Crow's apology, and did you find it to be sincere? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure it's sincere, but uh, it was definitely in the sorry you were offended kind of an apology. Like, uh, it wasn't about, sorry I cast a white person to play an Asian person. It was more like, sorry you guys didn't think it was cool that I cast a white person to be an Asian person, but she did her research, so it's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing is about, uh, you know, hashtag Emma Stoned. I'm going to get that out there. <laughs> is is that yes. is that you know it, it's not surprising that um you know Cameron Crowe or anyone thought it was a good idea to cast a 
a white person uh, to play uh, a person who was supposed to be of Asian and Pacific Islander descent. It happened. It's not the first time. It's not going to be the last time. Hell, it was even the last time that weekend where that movie came out. It was the same time that Marvel said, you know, who'd be a good Tibetan mystic? Tilda Swinton. <laughs> and, and I think that I think that, you know, you, we as Asian, as an Asian American, you, you're kind of used to it. Like it's happened to us over and over and over and over. And I just thought it was, you know, the perfect opportunity to kind of like make a point that, you know, bankability is usually an excuse. Like Emma Stone's, a, you know, an A-lister. Of course, you're going to cast her to play, you know, any role. But, you know, all intents and purposes, Aloha tanked at the box office. It got trounced in, in actuality by a movie starring a uh, mixed race Pacific Islander, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You know, he's black and Samoan. And he he's the biggest movie star in the world. So like, don't tell me that you have to cast white people to make your to make sure your movie makes money. Um, but you know, that's how I felt about it. And, and so what I did on the Nerds of Color is that I I wrote a post just just kind of like you know, and just the first like five or six actresses who were multiracial uh, Asian American or Pacific Islander that came to mind, and all of them could have played the role. Uh, there there are a ton of other people who could play. If you're going to gender bend the ancient one, fine, but you don't have to race bended at the same time and i feel like last point and i'll shut up is that uh, i think a lot of a lot of especially with like the ancient one there's a lot of like problematic like stereotypical things about these characters like raz al ghul or um you know the ancient one they're very much in that kind of fu manchu stereotype and i feel like like a lot of these movie producers and television producers are like well you know we understand that it's problematic so instead of like addressing the problems of those kinds of stereotypes we just cast them as white people and then the problem goes away and it's like, no, that's not how you deal with like racist characters. You don't just make them white and it, you know, it all goes away. And Nigela, um, would you have expected an apology from Crow if the film had been, cause the film had tanked, um, had it been a box office success or what, what do you think about that? Um, isn't that the same guy who made a whole movie in Egypt where everybody was white except the poor people and the thieves? That's Ridley Scott. That was oh, Ridley Scott. Okay. Yeah. That's the next movie. There's a, there's a movie coming out where, there, where there's another white lady playing an Asian person. So that's, that's. Oh, okay. Cause I was like, I, my, I have such a low bar for Hollywood at this point, uh, when it comes to representation of, uh, Asians, specifically Asian Americans, because, um, they, it's like, they just assume we don't exist. And what I used to be on another podcast, cause I'm addicted to them, I guess. Alter Negro show and his running joke, which I never thought was very funny, was whenever I would complain about this, he's like, well, cause nobody cares about Asians. And it's this idea that you can erase Asians out of mass media because there'll be no hoopla and you'll suffer no consequences. But I'm kind of glad that there seems to be like a cause and effect with completely whitewashing this character and, um, Kind of, uh, there were so many things about uh, Aloha specifically that made me feel just tons of ick. <laughs> Especially being a, a mixed race woman who, like, I look black and I never said and I look anything other than black. And when people see mixed race people and they expect a certain look or a certain way of presenting yourself, then they say, okay, you're you could be in this box to use an excuse that, well, there are Asian people that are mixed race that do look very white. So we don't need to find an actual Asian American actress. That made me feel 
very uncomfortable. And it would have set a horrible precedent if they just said, oh, well, you know, she looks Asian enough to us, so good deal. So I didn't expect an apology because um we never get them. We get the closest yeah. we get is uh I'm sorry that you feel bad about my actions. I am not actually sorry for taking those actions. And Hollywood's no different. I mean, is Marvel sending out any kind of apologies about the ancient one? No. Are, are we the the fact that they announce live action Mulan and people are hoping that they cast an Asian lead <laughs> yeah. speaks volumes. It does. Yeah. It's like we were already prepared that it's going to be a whitewashed character, which is kind of sad. Um, John, I want to ask you, do you buy the idea that uh, white well-knowns are better risk um, box office wise than casting Asian actors? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> um. <laughs> Kind of like what Keith said, you know, I mean, The Rock's the biggest action star out there, and, and uh, he's obviously a person of color, you know. Um, it's a weird dichotomy for Asian Americans, you know. We don't uh, get roles in movies because we're not, we don't have any big-name stars, but we don't have any big-name stars because we don't get roles in movies, you know. So it's kind of like, where do you, what needs to happen first? It's like the chicken or egg. Someone's got to take a chance and say, hey, I'm just going to make this character and they're going to be Asian, and we're going to try to find the best person possible to play this role. And hopefully, you know, it goes well. Um, we haven't had a lot of representation in the past. And, I mean, the best representation we had was Bruce Lee, and he passed away before I was even born. So, and he made his own mark, right? I mean, he's a movie maker, and he's like, I'm going to star in these roles, and I'm going to make these movies, and no one's going to tell me no. Um, I'm not... I don't know if we will have another person in that position where it's like they have the power to do that. Um, I think we need writers and directors and people out there to realize that the color of somebody's skin isn't really, um, it shouldn't be a determining factor about marketability because I don't think it is. I mean, we see plenty of people of color that are stars in, in America and around the world, you know, um, there aren't very many Asian ones, not Asian American ones, but um, they exist. Uh, they're not all white, you know. So I, I think, yeah, you definitely could have the Asian American be as big of a star um, as any white actor out there. Alice, do you think Anna Stone should take some accountability for accepting this role, or should we hold the casting director and the producers accountable? I do think the power and the <clears throat> Responsibility lies more on the casting director, producers, directors, and of course the studio executives who are obsessed with marketability. And again, it's kind of marketability to who and Mm -hmm. their conceptions of marketability. And, you know, their ideas are, their, their ideas of what is marketable is definitely messed up in my mind. And let's face it, I mean, you know, less people are going to movies now with so many online options. And I'm totally biased and believe that actors of color have a much harder time getting roles in mainstream films. But in imagining, let's say, the mindset of white actors and the, and the roles they're up for, they may think that all actors are in the same boat, all facing, you know, cut through a competition 
And that in the end, you know, the person with the most talent or the best agent will win the role, which is, you know, a pretty naive way of thinking, in my opinion. But again, this is just pure speculation. And, and Christine, um, I, I want you to answer this question. Feel free to uh, chime in on either of the previous questions that I asked um, Keith and Ajayla, John and Alice. But um, do you think it's worse when an Asian director whitewashes characters like M. Night, what he did with Avatar, The Last Airbender? Um, or should we hold people of color um, that are in power to higher standards when it comes to representation? Well, uh, it's it's kind of a sticky... I like to explain it like it's a minefield. Like, for me, because I love all things Avatar... Uh, when that movie was announced, I was excited. I was like, wow, we're going to get some representation. And then they started announcing the cast. And I'm, I was thinking, wait, no, what happened to our representation? And then I guess for me, it almost hurt more to know that it was M. Night behind the movie because in the back of my head, I'm thinking, wait, you're a person of color too. Didn't you grow up not seeing yourself in media? Wouldn't it be nice if your kids could see themselves on the screen and have role models and not feel that marginalization that Asian Americans feel because we don't see ourselves, you know, except for kind of tokenism or we're background characters or we're the best friend or we're kind of written one note as the, you know, I don't know, nerdy computer person, even though there are Asian nerdy computer people, but that's not what we all are, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, does it frustrate you when, when you see this happening and is it, is it a Hollywood thing? Is it something where Hollywood feels like that this is the only way to make a return on the box office and to mass market, not only domestically, but internationally? Or is it something where it's something inherent? Like it's, it's racism. It's white supremacy. Is it, do you think it's something bigger than that? No, I mean, I think, I think, I'm sorry. Oh, can, no, no, go I, ahead. Can I jump? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the thing about the, you know, the, this, this kind of false notion that act, you know, the acting is really a meritocracy and it's really the best actor for the role. I, I don't buy that because when a casting director puts out calls, like a, a casting sheet, you know, those casting sheets usually, if they're not specific about like, we we're only looking for Caucasian actors or we're looking for like specific race or, you know, whatever, that they'll even if they're quote unquote raceless, the default is always white, right? Like the all American is going to be white. The uh the 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 boy next door is going to be like blonde hair and blue eye, right? It's like like there's there's there is that built in kind of like white supremacy that that that's in Hollywood. That just that's just there's no uh there's no other way to say it. Because you know, one of the things that you know I'm seeing the on the on the on the Twitter stream people are saying like there are plenty of Asian actors and there are plenty of Asian actors who have pretty well-known status in the industry. You know, I, I wrote a post several months ago about, like, you know, people kind of forget that he's mixed-race Asian-American, but Keanu Reeves is one of the biggest movie stars in the world, too, right? Mm-hmm. But he kind of passes for white, so, like, people kind of right. go, okay, but he's, he's white enough that he doesn't count. But, like, that dude's brought in, like, $1.9 billion in box office. How is he not considered a person of color who's made a lot of money? But the, but the idea, like, someone like a Jim Sturgis, if you're not familiar, he's this guy... He's this uh, British actor, white guy, 
who's who's played like Asian in a couple roles, right? He's he 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 had his eyelids taped up in Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas. Yeah. He uh he uh he played a a character who was supposed to be an Asian American in a movie called Twenty One. So before Emma Stone, he was my go-to punchline for whenever they were casting an Asian role. I would be like, Hey, Jim Sturgis would be a great Mulan. Um. <laughs> But, but, but like, but anyway, like, if you look at someone like even, you know, Sung Kang, who's, who plays Han in the Fast and Furious movies, right? If you, like, total up all the movies he's been in, or John Cho, those movies make a billion dollars. If you total up all the movies that Jim Sturgis has been in, they're like $200 million. But who's the movie star in Hollywood's eyes? It's Jim Sturgis. He's the guy, if we need a, if we need a lead actor to play a role, I'm gonna cast him over the Asian guy because, uh, he's the better movie star, even though, I had to explain who he was, and I said John Cho, and I'm pretty sure everyone listening knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? But he's not yeah. the movie star. Jim Sturgis is the movie star. Well, I think at this point, um, you kind of have to just say there's white supremacy at work because, like what he's saying, they, uh, if casting directors would rather put a less bankable um, British guy in instead of an actual Asian-American person because they're going to say, oh, well, bankability... It, it just seems to be like, uh, I think American audiences are more comfortable seeing white people. Um, and American audiences more and more, uh, A, I think America is way too diverse to use that as an excuse. And B, if we live in this global economy, um, Asian stars should be very bankable because every third person on earth is Asian or mixed with Asian. <laughs> We're kind of the majority here. <laughs> Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, I, there's more whitewashing that kind of continues here too with the casting announcements. And we brought this up already with the, um, ancient one and Dr. Strange that's going to be played by Tilda Swinton. Seems like they went a step forward by making it a gender bending character, but then they took a step back by whitewashing it. Um, and then also Scarlett Johansson. Uh, was cast in Ghost in the Shell. So, uh, Keith, as a fellow comic book nerd, I want to know, <laughs> you've talked about this a lot on your site, I, I want to know your thoughts on the Ancient One casting, and what was your thoughts when that was first announced? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, that that goes back, I mean, it's funny that, like, you know, like you, you had mentioned, I was on Huffington Post Live, and I was on MSNBC last week, kind of talking about Aloha, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, I was, I was doing all these media appearances talking about a movie that I could, like, give a shit about, right? Like, I don't care about Aloha at all, and clearly neither did the rest of America. But, um, <laughs> but the, the, the casting thing that I was really kind of, like, ticked off about was, was, was the ancient one. And, and I said this earlier, like, I get that, you know, you could, you could excuse it by saying, well, you know, the ancient one is kind of, like, re, you know, wrought in, like, Orientalism and stereotype. Um, but as I said earlier, like, that's true, you should acknowledge that, but I don't think the way that you acknowledge the, like, problematic Orientalist trope is to just say, well, let's just make it a white person. Um, because, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things about the Doctor Strange character, he's already kind of steeped in Orientalism anyway. If they were going to, like, race-bend a character, they should have race-bend Doctor Strange, right? Like, there was a, there was actually, you know, they, they, instead they cast Benedict Cumberbatch, um, because they, they, again, with, with Tilda Swinton, they just figured, let's, instead of casting people of color, let's just cast the whitest people. And they, and they did that for the Doctor Strange movie, a movie that all intents and purposes is filled with like Orientalist tropes and fantasies and all that. But the, we're, we're going to have Benedict Cumberbatch being mentored by Tilda Swinton, and it's like, um, you know, why, why, why can't we even, 
like participate in our own like stereotypes <laughs> anymore. Like I'm mad that they're taking our stereotypes away. Damn it. <laughs> I actually think Doctor Strange, the first Marvel universe movie, I'm just tap, I'm tapping it out. Uh, even with the addition of, um, uh, what's his name? Who I have adored in other movies, but he's playing a character in the comic that's traditionally like the villain. So we have the black guy gets to be the villain and, um, the white lady gets to be, um, all ancient knowing goodness. That, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that, and I also just don't like Benedict Cumberbatch's face. <laughs> so, I'm gonna see it for 90 minutes. Oh, and also, I think this is rare enough. There's a lot of, uh, you know, articles about, oh, it's a step forward for women, and, you know, nobody talks about, wow, you know, until this went on, like, is, is it, I mean, it's a false dichotomy that, Pit these ideas that, you know, uh, we need more representation of women in Hollywood and, uh, we need more representation of people of color, but it's kind of weird how there was a lot of praise for the casting of Tilda, and yet nobody really mentions, well, you know, it is whitewashing too. So I, I found that interesting as well. Well, you know, all the women are white and all the men are of color. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Unless they have, um, you know, somebody who they need to play the violin and get rescued by a white man or <laughs> be treacherous and betray a, a white woman. They don't really call for Asian women. Yeah. Well, and Unless you're Lucy Liu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Or Olivia Munn now. She's getting a lot of work. Yeah. Um, so Benedict might be the new Jim Sturgis because he did also play Con in right. Star Trek. And, oh, that's right. Yeah. So yeah. now, so like, what's going on with these British white guys? You know, just taking on it's like imperialism and colonialism, like all over again. It feels like, wow, like what's up with that? Nigel, well, you oh, go ahead, Keith. No, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm monitoring the Twitter feed as 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 we're talking, and and then someone brought up the, a movie called The Forbidden Kingdom. Um, uh, at Black Nerdity brought up the, the Forbidden Kingdom. And this was, this was like a small film that came out many years ago, uh, with Jet Li and Jackie Chan. And I just wanted to say, cause I just saw the tweet and I apologize for hijacking the, um, the podcast, but this is what you get when you put me on your podcast. <laughs> is, 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 I, that movie, uh, even though the movie was billed as Jackie Chan versus Jet Li, it also centered around a white dude, right? And this is another thing that's like beyond just one step of whitewashing. It's like, they feel like even if we're going to tell an Asian story, we need to tell it from the perspective of a white person because there was rumors of a Bruce Lee movie coming out in a couple of years, a movie about Bruce Lee, but it was going to be about Bruce Lee through the lens of this white dude who kind of was like in the area, I guess. He was like in the neighborhood and I'm going to, but the movie's going to be through his point of view because Bruce, Bruce Lee himself isn't going to sell the movie, right? But I think that's the, that's kind of like the other layer of whitewashing that even if they're going to be in a story about Asians, we have to tell it through the lens of a white person too. So that's like, that's like whitewashing on top of, uh, you know, just erasure. Like we can't even tell our own stories. Like a, a great example of that is The Last Samurai. Like that's, that's like so those... insulting though. Oh gosh, to, to Asian Americans. Yeah, totally. Like, the, last, the Last Samurai. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. It's Last Samurai and the Karate Kid. And I, yeah. That's totally. And I unfortunately uh, saw the Karate Kid Part Two, which was the protagonist was. Hillary Swank, and I was like, oh my god, like, 
Well, I have I have very strong feelings in the positive about the Karate Kid, yeah. but I'll, I'll get in that in another. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's a very meaningful movie to me. Um, and Najela, you had brought up the topic of white supremacy earlier. I want to ask, how does white supremacy play a role in whitewashing uh, characters of color? And do you find that there are malicious motives behind this, or is just Hollywood willfully ignorant? Um, well, it's kind of hard to say what is malicious and what, I mean, when you have instances of whitewashing, um, I'm gonna use a weird example because it's the one that always comes to me because I wrote about it. They did a Walking Dead porn parody. <laughs> uh, Burning Angel did one and they had a white character, a white actor play Glenn. And they didn't, they didn't tell this actor that that's who he was going to play. So we kind of came on set and they, uh, I, I, it looked like cheese doodle dust, but they put whatever they put on his face, taped it back and, um, released this movie and then felt so like they were so shocked that somebody had somebody to say, like, how could you criticize us? It was all in good fun. And so I think a lot of people, or a lot of content creators, when they do these things, they're not seeing themselves as doing something malicious. They're not seeing it as um, purposefully erasing people. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what your intent is. The damage you're doing is, it's palpable, it's real. It's something that um, people face, and it's something that damages the people who are consuming it, whether they're Asian, American, or not. Um, it's, I, I've grown up with people who, um, you know, I never really wanted to tell people that I was mixed. It was something that I didn't talk about until maybe middle of high school, getting into college, um, because there is the idea that um, Asian-ness, and blackness, they were like the antithesis of each other. So you can be both at the same time. And I think that hap- that's because of a lot of media messaging of what it was to be black and what it is to be Asian. And because there was really not a lot of content where you get to see a quote unquote Asian American identity, it, it becomes so much harder to navigate when you're not around your, you know, quote unquote people. And because there's a lot of content creators, even of color, like we're talking about M. Night Shyamalan, um, who, when given the opportunity, are still not casting people of color, specifically Asians, for roles that were written for or intended to be Asian Americans, it just makes um, visibility that much harder. Even though it's been proven that, I mean, putting uh, Asian American in your film is not box office poison. Uh, the G.I. Joe movies, uh, they're not going to win Oscars. <laughs> Nobody is going to be <laughs> particularly enlightened. But, you know, they, it filled seats and it was half the way because it was people go to see those movies for sexy dudes. And it was filled with sexy dudes. And Young Hung Lee was a big reason why people went to see the second one. Because he's going to be back. He's going to be shirtless for no reason. (laughs) And he was shirtless for no reason in that movie. (laughs) And I thank him for it. Yes. (laughs) Amen. Amen to that. 
So um, it's it's hard to to say. Uh, I mean, I don't not hard to say, but I think it's it's uh, maybe we're asking the wrong question. It's whether it's malicious or not, because I don't think the intent matters. It's the the effect that it's happening. Like even if you're trying to be the the nicest movie producer, if you are saying, oh well, it's just nicer with white people. Even though you're not doing it hatefully towards non-white people, it, it's still an act of erasure, and mm. your your intent doesn't matter when it comes to that. Wow! Yeah, your intent does not matter when it comes to that. Yes, that's so true. Thank you for that. Um, we we were talking about characters of color and directors of color like M Night that are still making these movies and creating these properties that whitewash. I, I want to ask you, John, you, you created Run, Love, Kill, which is a comic that features an Asian female protagonist. And not to put you on the spot, but what would you do or say if your character was whitewashed in a film or TV adaptation of Run, Love, Kill? Um, that's kind of tough to answer. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, I guess, let me preface my answer by saying that uh, if you – if you're in my position and you do option a um, a property out to Hollywood, uh, you don't have a lot of control over it um, unless you're somebody like a J.K. Rowling who had a massive success on her hands before um, Hollywood came sniffing around. Um, so she ha- obviously had a lot of say in what happened in the movies. Uh, someone like me who does not have a lot of power and doesn't have like a major success um, on his hands. Um, I wouldn't get a lot of say about what happened um, with the the movie side of things. Um, I would hope that um, I could line up with people who understood my concerns about representation. Um, the trend right now in in Hollywood is to, as as far as properties getting um, optioned, um, studios don't really buy in unless there's a writer or a director attached to it. Um, so they could kind of get an idea of what the movie version of said property is going to look like. Um, so I, I would probably try to, um, find a director who was a person of color. Um, or if it was a white person, um, a white woman, uh, somebody who understood what it meant to be in a marginalized group. Um, so they would have a better understanding of, of my concerns with, with representation. Um, and kind of just go from there. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I kind of just see my position as I don't got a lot to say, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> if I gotta, if I gotta put myself in position to continue to create, uh, new characters that are people of color, um, I also gotta think about like the financial side of it, you know, it's, it's a weird, weird position to be in. Um, and something that I've talked to like other comic book creators about, it's like, you know, are we selling out, you know, are we <laughs> like, where, where do we put our foot down? Um, you know, because if, if this is my career, um, you know, I got to think about the next projects and all those kind of things too. So, um, I would fight as hard as I could, but at the end of the day, you know, once it's option, it's, it's not really up to me, unfortunately. I actually had a, a kind of a weird experience with that. Um, I write, well, I, when I was in college, I used to write erotica because I was bored and I put it on my blog and this independent guy who produces movies was like, Oh, I want to make a, a bunch of shorts based on it. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And then he's like, Oh, 
But I think it'd be more profitable if we changed the protagonists to white girls. And I was like, no. Uh, you have everything. There's so many other stories that you could, you could pick. You could throw a stone in the erotica section and you'll have hundreds of stories uh, about white women with, you know, anybody under the sun. Why take these short stories that were specifically centering around, you know, brown skinned women of color of different ethnicities and then say, I want to make an anthology, but let's replace all of them with white women. So I just said, no. <laughs> and I know that, you know, I was poor before I was going to be poor after. So it was probably a much easier no, but uh <laughs> I, I just, I could, I just didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to contribute. Alice, why do you think that there are so many movies out there that whitewash Asian characters? You know, I'm mystified by that, and I wonder about it a lot. And, you know, one reason might be, you know, it's the thought that Asians and Asian Americans are still considered the stranger, you know, this foreign other with all the racist baggage that comes from that. I mean, as Keith mentioned, I mean, you know, the entertainment industry has set the default race to white so that the whiteness is the norm and the belief that white actors provide the greatest depth and range of expression and talent and that white actors can occupy the screen with more gravitas and attraction to the audience. And in the flip side, you know, that makes actors of color seen as deviant from this norm, which is why there's such a fear and anxiety by decision makers on whether an audience will actually buy a role, buy a performance of an Asian actor playing an Asian role when they've been accustomed to see the majority of white faces on the screen. And it's ridiculous and defies logic. But again, this is the racist structure that produces this kind of cultural norm. And especially, I think, again, it's since so many roles um, that are out there for Asian and Asian American actors are still so limited, you know, in the, type, in the types of actors and roles they can play, you know, as the immigrant, the kick-ass martial artist, you know, the person with an accent, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's still this idea of white supremacy is really, you know, the, the main reason. And I think a lot of that is tied to the uh, the idea of the model minority, right? I mean, yeah. it's mm-hmm. um, yeah. Asians are viewed as the the immigrants that could uh, in America. You know, we're we're all well off, we're all doctors or lawyers or some bullshit like that. Um, and it's obviously not true. I think the whole model minority construct is really just a way to put other people of color down, you know, it's like, well, you know, why don't, why aren't you guys more like the Asians? Um, and it just becomes this weird stereotype that Asians don't need uh, representation uh, because they're so well off. Um, and we know that's not true for all Asians. Maybe, you know, there are some Asians that are, but there are all sorts of people of color and not people not of color that are well off and people who are, who are struggling, you know, it's, um, it's not just because you're Asian, you come to America and all of a sudden everything's okay for you. Um, 
but you know, it's just part of that system of yeah. people looking at us and thinking that we're one way. Um, and you know, why, why represent Asians? Why help them when they're, where they're doing fine on their own, you know? And, um, it's just stereotypes and bullshit, really. Yeah, I feel like our humanity is so fine. I mean, and we see, you know, white roles, white characters. There's a huge range of, you know, diversity and the nuance and their humanity is not denied. So I feel like with people of color, actors of color, you know, there still isn't this full range of expression. And I also wonder if, you know, this model minority myth also plays into the way people think, oh, Asian Americans are not going to get pissed off at these, you know, whitewashing decisions. You know, like, you're only, you know, a small percentage. They're not going to, you know, be all, you know, trying to boycott people and stuff like that. So I feel like some of that also plays into the thinking of casting decisions. Christine, what do you um, think it would take to break this cycle of whitewashing and get some some representation um, for um, AAPI characters? Um, sometimes I think uh, that if we don't, and I say we like is the big umbrella for Asian Americans everywhere, if we don't like the stories that are being written or told about us, then I know people always say, well, why don't you just create things? Well, okay, that's that's one suggestion. But if there's no casting director that's willing to, like Keith said earlier, put out a casting sheet that specifically says, these are Asian American roles and we want Asian Americans to come and read for these roles or have an um, Asian uh, Shonda Rhimes or have a show like Living Single, which was one of my favorite shows growing up, you know, have nothing but. Asian women, you know, living together and telling stories. And I don't know, like, what's the one thing that'll tip the scales to get us up over the hump? Because you you have shows that sometimes, like, for example, Hawaii Five-0. Like, I tried to watch season one of that show because it had Daniel Day Kim and it had Grace Park. And people were telling me, oh, they're lead characters. They are in the show. So I watched the entire season one and I'm like, well... Okay, they, they, they are kind of lead characters, but in honesty, the, the, the show focuses on the two white leads and the Asian characters usually a background. Then all the native Hawaiians are, you know, even further in the background. So uh, by the time I got to the end of season one and then they added another Caucasian lady to the cast, I went, well, no, I'm done. I can't watch this anymore because it's, it, it, I'm happy that they're on screen, but it's almost like their stories are always secondary to white protagonists. So it's just that burnout of why can't there be Asian leads? Why can't casting directors and creators that have the, 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 uh, I don't know, the, the voice be more vocal about it and break the, the damn stereotype of the quiet Asian that we will just kind of you know, not boycott a thing and not get angry and go, no, this is bullshit. Put us on screen. <laughs> you know? It's also user, user imagination, right? Yeah. It, it's yeah. like, you know, if you really think about, you know, people in the industry and trying to be creative, I mean, I want to see, you know, an Asian friends and an Asian breaking bad. I mean, I mean, that would be so refreshing, I think, and rather than placing, you know, Asian Americans and just the 
Chinatown episode. Of like, mm. That's one of my biggest pet peeves, right? Like a Law and Order, or you know, and I love Law and Order. No, no, don't mind me. I mean, I love Law and Order, but it's always the Chinatown episodes where you actually see actual Asians in New York City, and mm. you know there are thousands of Asians there, and there is B.D. Wong, but again, he's another really, you know, barely there. Yeah. Cousins, right? And uh, I just I just recently, well, sorry, I didn't mean to, to jump in. Uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes just showed up on HBO, and so my husband and I are like, oh, let's watch it, because why not? It's free. So we're watching it and it's supposed to be set in, you know, the post-apocalyptic San Francisco where the apes have taken over and the humans are, you know, just trying to survive. And I literally counted one Asian man with glasses in San Francisco. Mm. And I <laughs> wow. thought, clearly you've not been to San Francisco. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, we couldn't even get in the background yeah. in a post-apocalyptic society. And that's, that's like another one of my tangential, I can never say that word, tangents of complaint is anytime they do a, here's a movie or a, a storyline with post-apocalyptics. There's never any Asians, you know, that's, well, except for Glenn on Waking, uh, uh, the Walking Dead. Dead. Yeah. I so. think that's because it's the unspoken rule of sci-fi. Yeah. You can have, um, Asian culture, but no a- Asian bodies. <laughs> Uh, and you could have black bodies, but absolutely no black culture. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And then at the most, you have one yeah. character, but never more than two or three. Because this is a Chinatown episode, or an yes. episode, you know, set in that Asian country, right? Like, somehow in America, having a bunch of Asian Americans or Asians in one room seems foreign, right? Or it doesn't belong. I also think they, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I also kind of always get annoyed at the lack of variety of what American media thinks Asian American stories can be. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because you could have maybe there's like three varieties of immigrant stories. So you have the like immigrant, the child of the immigrants who now wants to rebel, um, AKA live like white folks. And get away from their foreign parents whose food smells. Or you have the, um, the, the Asian gangster movie that was kind of popular for a while. Uh, and, uh, then you had the, um, um, I, I really, really like white girls movies. And then at the end, there's either the protagonist discovers that it's okay to be Asian but still ends up with the white person as a prize or there is so in love with this white person because the movie really isn't about the Asian, it's about the white person who gets to fall in love and get somebody's culture as a consolation prize. And those seems to be like your Asian American stories and there's just so much more that you can tell. There's so much more. I mean, it the the Asian American as an umbrella is, is literally billions of potential stories because it covers millions of people and the fact that we just get like you said the law and order episode that takes place in chinatown that usually has to do something weird with human trafficking yeah and people in crates or something and that that's pretty much it and it just seems so limiting especially because you know you, you only get usually one 
one perspective. So you you have to be a fancy Asian. So none 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 of the brown skin people are getting on air. I think before mm-hmm. Mindy Kaling, I never saw a dark brown skin Asian woman speak more than a line that mm-hmm. wasn't played for laughs. Yeah. Wow. I want to uh, move on to just speak to each of your individual projects because you guys have various areas of expertise that you're currently doing work in. So I'm just going to go down the line, starting with Keith, uh, Nerds of Color. I read it all the time. I read this one article, which is my favorite article, and I always reference it when we have this conversation on Twitter about Iron Fist. Um, <laughs> you, you wrote a brilliant piece about why you believe Iron Fist should be Asian. Um, can you tell us quickly uh, what the piece was about and what was your reaction to the article after it was published? Yeah, so um, the last year I wrote this piece about, um, you know, when, Net- when Netflix and Marvel announced that they were uh, doing their, their Netflix-only shows, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage and Iron Fist, um, you know, it, it just dawned on me that this would be a really good opportunity for them to cast the Iron Fist uh, show with a lead Asian American actor. Because one, as a kid growing up, my two favorite super, my two favorite Asian American superheroes were Snake Eyes and Iron Fist, and then I found out that they were both white guys, and I was like, shit. Um, so. So, you know, the G.I. Joe film is kind of like, well, we'll, we'll split the difference. We'll cast a guy named Ray Park, even though he's a white dude. He sounds like he's an Asian guy. So whatever. Um, but with but with Iron Fist, I was like, this is an opportunity to cast an Asian-American actor to play a role. Again, going back to what I was saying about Doctor Strange, a role, uh, a character in the comics that's steeped in like Orientalism and stereotype. And I feel like one of the one of the best ways to kind of address that is to is to cast an Asian-American person, because um, I think that. So this kind of ties into the reaction, the, the the post writing of the article. A lot of people came back at me and like, well, there are two things wrong with that, Keith. One, the whole point of Danny Rand is he's an outsider in an, in a in a foreign world, and and if he's if he's white, it makes sense. If he's Asian, they're just going to accept them, accept him. And I'm like, well, have you ever been to Asia as an Asian American? They don't accept you. They don't care. <laughs> you look like them. You don't act like them. So it doesn't matter. And right. two. Um, the other, the other complaint was like, well, sure, the one martial artist superhero, you want to make him Asian? That's racist. And I'm like, all right, number one, <laughs> there's nothing stereo, there's nothing racist about like martial arts in general. Like martial arts really is a real thing that Asian people really do. <laughs> the problem with the, the martial arts stereotype is that when you see it depicted in like Western media, it goes back to what everyone's saying. It's in the, it's the, it's the very one dimensional kind of like, you know, some guy flailing his arms and then getting like shot in the face by the white guy, right? Like that's that's like the the martial artist is not a very complex character in Western media. Martial, if you ever seen like a real martial arts film from Asia, they're three dimensional characters. So my point is that like here's an opportunity to make a three dimensional Asian American character. Uh, sure, he's a martial artist, but he's also going to be a superhero. He's also going to be he's also going to have like you know daddy issues. He's going to have you know, revenge, uh, you know, and I, going back to what we were saying earlier, his love interest in the comics is Misty Knight. And I think it's long past the time yes. we had Asian male, black, female romantic relationship on, in TV or in movies mm-hmm. or whatever. That's yep. not something to see every day. So, you know, all I of feel these, somewhat differently about that. <laughs> that, well, I, you know, I, I, but these, these are all just like, these are me- some of the reasons that I thought it just made sense to make Danny Rand Asian American. Clearly, I got a lot of pushback from folks who felt that, like, for the reasons that I gave, but I don't 
care. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, that's the, that was the main kind of like gist behind why I think Iron Fist should be Asian American. And then, and then 18 Million Rising, which is an Asian American um, advocacy group, kind of got behind the idea and they, they put together a petition that I don't know if Marvel is paying attention to. Funnily enough, that's the one show that they haven't announced anything for. So like, you know, fingers crossed that they're still considering. Um, we've kind of, now we're also saying like, you know, Spider-Man should also be Asian American. I know that they've kind of, they've li- they've narrowed down their choices for the Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man to three white guys, but we, st- I, you know, one of the things that we've been pushing lately is, uh, Ryan Potter, who did the voice of Hero Hamada in Big Hero 6. He's a, he's a teenage, you know, mixed race Asian American actor. And, and my push now is to make him Spider-Man. So like, not only do we want an Asian American Iron Fist, we want an Asian American Spider-Man. So let's see if Marvel lis- listens. Or, or they'll just cast Tilda Swinton as Spider-Man. <laughs> or Emma Stone. Emma Stone. No, Spider-Man. Emma Stone. Well, I, I hate to burst your bubble on Iron Fist. Uh, I don't think they're going to cast an Asian American actor only because Ryan Phillippe came yeah. in for a meeting with Marvel. Um, and even though it has not been officially announced, if you go to the IMDb, web, IMDb website and pull up Iron Fist, his name is listed as Danny Rand. So I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't but know. I'm, I'm sure it was a pipe dream. It's, it, it was a pipe dream anyway, but you know, I mean, I think. But it makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah. And you guys got to check that out on nerdsofcolor.com. That, that's a great article and it, it definitely gives some good reasons as to, as to why he should be Asian. Um, Najela, I, I want to ask you, you work as a sex positive advocate and and feminist, and you're also a self-declared black girl nerd. Uh, you're a co-host of Nerd. Uh, we Nerd Her Hard right here on Twib FM. I, I want to know what has it been um, for you as a black and Asian woman working in this industry, and have you found that many other women of color have been inspired by the work that you do? And what has been the coolest thing for you as a black woman today in nerd culture? Uh, uh well, <laughs> I know that's a lot. Actually, it, it is a lot. Uh. Uh, I thought you talked about like uh the sex positive stuff, which I think that I, yeah I have I think I have it's more, a two part question. I have more positive things to say about um speaking in sex positive spaces and cr- actually creating sex positive spaces. Um, I am very happy that there are um Asian American women and men who are becoming more vocal um in these spaces and talking about sex because. When I started my blog, something that really bothered me is um, how I felt America really saw Asian sexuality as something for non-Asian consumption. Um, you, If you look at um, adult movies and how they kind of erase Asian man and, uh, well, the straight ones at least, either erase Asian men and the gay films are, have very, um, like, uh, Asia-file vibe when it comes to casting Asians. Um, they're usually always twinks. So seeing this, um, kind of growth and kind of, um, seeing more and more that there are people vocal about an Asian American sexual identity and the many things that go into, uh, the sexual politics of Asian America, having that discussed, I think is just amazing. So that's been great. Um, as a nerd, uh, I mean, for comic books, uh, seeing a lot of like creator made books have, has made me pretty happy. Uh, I, I think I had my first major setback as, just a, a black girl nerd or blazing girl nerd, uh, 
where I was working at a comic book shop and then I kind of got fired for having a vagina and opinions at the same time. And apparently that was really offensive. <laughs> so I, I actually have not been in a comic book shop since. I haven't really been picking up new books. But uh, I think following um, uh, like Black Comic Books Month and looking at all these creator-made books, I'm just excited to come back and read them. And what I really would love uh, is to make a erotic anthology comic book that has people of color. So it would be showcasing erotic art and sequential art and storytelling around uh, the sexuality of, you know, black women, black men, Asian men, Hispanic men, native, aboriginal, like all types of people. So that that's kind of my goal. <laughs> I, but I'm taking baby steps with it because uh, I'm, I'm horrifically poor. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, John, I want to ask you, I'm, I'm a fan of your comic, Run, Love, Kill. We did a review here on BGN. It's a great story with awesome characters of color. Can you tell us briefly, uh, for those who haven't read it yet, what the comic is about and how has it been received so far since it's been published? Yeah, um, it's about a character named Rain Oshiro. She's um, stuck in this city and kind of been on, in hiding from this corporation called the Origami. Um, and she's almost out. Uh, she thinks she's kind of on her way to freedom and they track her down. Um, and the story is really just about that, I guess, that 24 hours, um, or so where they, they find her and she has to make the decision whether to, uh, run away from them as she's always been doing for, you know, for these past two years or kind of stand up for herself. Um, so issue three is out on Wednesday. Um, and as far as reception goes, um, I think it's been pretty good. Um, I don't try, I don't read too many of like the reviews just because I don't know, it's, it's all over the place and I don't want to let that stuff get in my head, you know, as I'm, as I'm still uh, writing the book. But, um, from people that I've met that have read it, uh, from the other creators that I know, um, who have taken the time to read it, um, people have been very positive. I'm excited about it. So it's, it's been a fun ride and, um, Got to keep it going. And Najela, I'll send you a copy since you haven't been in a comic book store. But hit me up and I'll get you some comics in your hands. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yay. <laughs> nice. It's nice. Yeah, it's really good. You should definitely check it out. Alice, you do some amazing work on social media speaking to issues of ableism and running projects like the Disab- uh, Disability Visibility Project. Can you tell us about the work that you do in this area and why is it needed? Oh, thanks so much. So the Disability Visibility Project is a community partnership with StoryCorps, and StoryCorps is a nonprofit that records the oral histories of anybody with the option of archiving those stories at the Library of Congress. And there are so many communities that are marginalized by the mainstream media and by history, especially people with multiple intersectional identities. And you know, related to the topic of whitewashing. To me, it's all about resisting erasure, creating our own content, being in control of our own representation and narrative in an effort to raise our visibility one story at a time and showing really the rich diversity within our community, such as the voices of queer people with disabilities and 
disabled people of color. So if anybody's interested, feel free to check out our website, disabilityvisibilityproject.com. Thank you. And Christine, tell us about the work that you do over at Geek Girl Con and also how you use social media, um, the social media account to help spread the message of diversity. Um, when I started uh, with doing the Twitter feed for Geek Girl Con, um, I realized how easy it would be to only pull news stories from kind of the handful of feminist or geek sites that I was familiar with. Um, not that I still don't have love for the Mary Sue or Jezebel, but as I spent more and more time online and started following more people and building the Twitter following, I found sites like Black Girl Nerds and Reappropriate and the Nerds of Color, um, Indian Country, um, Let's Queer It Up. Um, I, yesterday, in fact, I found an online Samoan magazine for women. I was like, that's awesome. They're going to be added to my feed. Um, so basically what I try to do is I try to include perspectives and voices that don't always get heard. Um, and I have messed up. I've made mistakes. Like I didn't know, uh, that there was a problem with say Tilda Swinton being cast as in that role. And I like tweeted, Hey, Tilda Swinton. Awesome. And two people went, no, this is why. And so I learned something. I kind of consider it as stumbling uphill. Mm. That sometimes living in the discomfort that the work isn't done. And even though I'm successful one day, owning mistakes, if I make one the next, if I mm-hmm. like misgender someone or maybe tweet something that offended someone else, because there's so many different perspectives. And what I try to do is, is kind of act as a conduit to get those perspectives out there because I love living in Seattle, but Seattle is hella white. Mm-hmm. Um, so- <laughs> I love it here, but it is really, really white. Yeah. Um, and like when I first moved here, people would say, oh, there's Asians in the ID or in white center. And I'd try to explain to them how that was problematic for them to tell me that. Like you can find them, but they're here, um, especially growing up in Houston where it was a melting pot. And growing up, I had Vietnamese friends and African-American friends and it, white friends and it just, you know, Latino friends and it wasn't a big deal. And then moving to here where it's super not segregated, but it's, it's definitely, it's, you know, there's, it's, yeah, can be problematic living in Seattle. So uh, long story short, what I basically try to do with the Geek Girl Con social feed and in the outreach we do is, uh, myself and the copy editor and, and other people on staff really try to do outreach to say, Hey, Geek Girl Con is a place where you're welcome. Come to our convention, come to these events. Um, we throw a board game night twice a month where it is specifically inclusive and it's open to anyone and everyone as long as you understand that there will be no mansplaining. You know, you're not going to say anything boneheaded or racist. And the first time you do, we have a zero harassment policy. You're out. Please leave. Um, which has worked pretty well. Um, yeah. So I love what we do. And our fifth convention is October 10th and 11th. So I just had to say that. My plug. <laughs> yes, yes. Great con. Check it out. <laughs> love Geek Girl Con. Uh, 
So we're going to be wrapping up really soon, but I wanted to get this question out here because it was actually one of my questions, but someone on Twitter wanted to know as well about, um, you know, we've been talking about lack of diversity and uh, lack of representation, but there has been some recent representation going on with respect to the new show, Fresh Off the Boat. So I wanted to ask each of you, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Fresh Off the Boat? Have you seen it? And uh, do you think it portrays Asian Americans in a positive light? Uh, uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it got a little quiet, so maybe not. I, I uh, well, okay, I'll, okay, I'll jump in. Um, I haven't seen it mostly because, uh, I've read the book that it's based on mm-hmm. and I wasn't impressed. Actually, that's been really nice. I really hated that book. <laughs> um, I, I think what's his name is just, uh, just. He's problematic. Prob- no, he's not problematic. Yeah, he's just. I, yeah, uh, he's just a bonehead. He's, I just kind of feel like people like him is a reason why God doesn't talk to us anymore. Just, he just takes, uh, he has one chapter, he's literally talking about bell hooks, and then in the next chapter, he's talking about how he wants to reclaim Asian masculinity with his whole big dick Asian movement. So basically, he, uh, I, I just, I didn't care for it. So, uh, and on the other flip side to that is, I remember growing up, you know, not in the exact same time as him, you know, I'm younger, but, uh, I remember growing up in like the late 90s where, you know, I couldn't really express how much I liked hip hop because I didn't want to get shot. I didn't want to be labeled as a criminal. So the the fact that everybody could be like, woohoo, hip hop, it's all, it, it brings us together. And I was like, no, that really wasn't my experience with it, but I guess you have fun. <laughs> so I don't know if I just have some like childhood baggage uh, that I will work through and one day be able to enjoy this. But um yeah, it's kind of hard to see people enjoying your own part of your own culture that you can't really participate in for fear of death. Mm. I mean, for me, I think uh, a couple of things. It's, uh, I have complicated feelings about the show because on one hand, you know, um, just full disclosure, my secret identity's partner, Jeff Yang, his son, Hudson, plays Eddie on the show. So um, there's that. And also Con- Constance Wu, who plays the mother, is also from VA. So you got to represent VA, right, Jamie? Yes. Um, <laughs> she's from she's from Virginia, as am I, as is Jamie. Uh, so you have to support her. On the other hand, like, I'm not big on sitcoms to begin with. So, like, it's not necessarily my vibe. I get why, um, you know, people are drawn to the show. And I mean, it, some of the episodes are fairly funny. I, I think that for, I think where I have issues is that, and I think it's not the show's fault. I think the problem is that it's the only one, right? So, like, it's, there's this uh, comedian, Jenny Yang. I think she coined the hashtag rep sweats. Like, every time you watch the show, you get this feeling like, are they going to get it right? Are they going to get it wrong? And you, oh my God, oh my God. And it's because they're the only Asian American family on TV, like ever <laughs> since market, like in the last 20 years and only. So what I'm excited about, um, not that I think it's going to be a good show either, but at least it's another show. There's a show coming out this fall called Dr. Ken with Ken Jong, a guy I'm not the biggest fan of primarily because I was a teacher during the time of the hangover. So you try being called Mr. Chow. When the, when the hangover's out and see how many people uh, snicker at I'm you. I'm so sorry. Oh, oh my God. Uh-huh. So like, that's one of the main reasons I'm not a big fan of Ken Jong. But at the same time, at least now there's another show on TV with an Asian American family. Um, so not, again, it may not, it might be terrible, but 
I feel like the problem is that when there's only the one show and you have to put all of your like hope and prayers and making, you know, that it'll be good and that it'll represent you. I think it's unfair to the show. Like the show's got to tell its own story. And, but, but because there are no other Asian American shows on TV that we, we kind of put all of our eggs in that basket. Um, so that's where I'm like, you know, cause there are some things that don't reflect my growing up, even though I am closer to Agent Eddie and I did kind of relive a lot of that stuff. I didn't necessarily have the same experience because the thing about, and this goes back to their first conversation, when you tell, the, the whole point about specificity, about like a person of color's experience, is that that's what makes the story universal, right? Like, we all have our own specific things that we bring to the table, and we want to see that represented. And when we see a specific story, it speaks to everyone. And I feel like that, that we need to let shows like that have that ability, but at the same time, when you're the only one that's got it, we have to be the Asian American show. Again, it's not their fault. It's not their, it's not something that, a weight that they need to bear, but they have to because they're the only one. So if there's more opportunities for, for other kinds of shows, other kinds of families to be represented, I think that will be ultimately when we can feel good about ourselves as like consumers of this media. Because right now, I think everyone has rep sweats when they watch it because it's like, mm-hmm. are they getting it right? Are they getting it wrong? And like, you don't do that when you watch it like, like, I'm sure white folk aren't watching Friends going, are they getting it right? <laughs> you know, but we have to do it when we watch Fresh Off the Boat because that's the kind of place we're in, you know? Yeah, and I was part of that group of people who wanted to make sure ABC knew that we were watching and I was live tweeting, I think, the first, you know, four or five episodes. And, you know, I think it was nice. They did some of the really nice kind of touches of, like, real, you know, actual reflections of getting it right. I mean certain vegetables they used, and I really appreciated how the grandma's Mandarin was, like, actually really on point, and it's such a nice little, you know, it's not, some people don't think about that, but, you know, her Mandarin was actually on point and real, you know, so that was really nice, and I think, again, it's really, we shouldn't give, like, studios, like, I mean, channel, uh, networks like ABC, a cookie, but, you know, they've got to get some props for, for having Fresh Off the Boat, Christella, um, and Blackish, you know, and of course, the Sun, the, um, Sunder Rhymes Juggernaut. I mean, that, it's a lot of diversity and it should be the norm. It shouldn't be thought of as revolutionary. And yet, right. it is, it is still seem, seeming as provocative and innovative when really that should be the default yeah yes absolutely yeah well oh oh go ahead no no i was just going to add to that that abc also has two other shows that um i remember watching the full run of uh, one was switched at birth which um has uh hearing impaired and they actually have um actors that do asl um on screen for great look, more than one scene. And then they have another show that was uh, Greek that was set in and around a fraternity and sorority. And they had a couple of characters that were people of color. And they told stories that I thought, well, that's really cool. Why can't other, you know, why can't we make it onto other shows? And like what Keith said, every time I watch Fresh Off the Boat, I take that deep breath, like, please be funny, please be funny. And it's an unfair burden you know, for one show to carry all of the hopes, you yeah. know. And like, if, if, if there was ever a Filipino family depicted on television, I would be like watching for, are they gonna have the big fork and spoon on the wall? 
that'll make me go, yup, <laughs> I had that growing up, or are they going to have the Last Supper painted on a piece of wood that I, I've always seen in every elder's house anytime I'm a kid? It's, it's, it's tough, because you, you want universality, you want universality, but then you also want to have the little things that maybe somebody from Taiwan would go, oh, that's what I grew up with. Or somebody who's Japanese American would go, oh, that's what I grew up with. So it's, it's tough to walk that line. Well, um, we have to go, but before we do, I just want to give you guys each the opportunity to give your shout outs, social media handles, websites, um, any projects that you're currently working on where we can find your content. So we'll start with Nujela, Keith, Christine, John, and then Alice. Oh, hey, uh, you could listen to me on this same station, uh, listen.twib.fm Wednesdays for After Dark, where I talk about sex, sexuality, a lot of sex positive feminism, um, and, uh, probably things I can't say in this time slot. And you can listen to me Tuesdays on We Nerd Hard, where I talk about geek stuff, which I can speak about in this time slot. Um, uh, you can also check out my site, which is BlasianBitch.com, bitch with a Y. And I have a couple of things coming up the pipe that, um, I don't know, I shouldn't get into it because they're not ready yet. <laughs> and you can follow me on Twitter at BlasianBitch with a Y. And Keith. Yeah, you can check out our site, thenerdsofcolor.org. Uh, we update every day. Um, and as everyone said, we, we like to write about geek stuff, primarily comics, movies, TV. Uh, a lot of, we do a lot of recapping of, um, uh, the shows are over now, but Arrow and The Flash and stuff like that. Anyway, find us at thenerdsofcolor.org, uh, ha- uh, Twitter at thenerdsofcolor. Uh, you can also follow me personally. I don't, I also tweet about stuff like the NBA. Uh, so if you don't like sports, don't follow me because I will tweet about like <laughs> game five tonight and, and, uh, you know, go Warriors. Um, go yeah. Warriors! <laughs> right. I'll also, uh, you can also, uh, follow me at SI Universe for things about secret identities, which is the Asian American superhero anthology that I edited. Uh, a couple of things coming down the pike in two weeks. I will be in Los Angeles at V3Con, which is an Asian American media conference, and I will be doing a panel. Uh, John will be a part of that panel. Bernard Chang, who's the artist of Batman Beyond, and Ray Spending's Marissa Lee will be on that panel. And I will be on a panel at San Diego Comic Con in July. But the thing I want to plug, um, it's not, we don't have a, we don't have a venue yet, but, uh, myself and Jamie are throwing our very first Nerds of Color slash Black Girl Nerds uh, meetup get together in San Diego. So okay. 757 is representing hard yes. at San Diego Comic Con. Awesome. <laughs> yes, indeed. Christine. Oh, it's me. I'm up. Okay. Um, you can follow, uh, me, uh, on Twitter, German City Girl, all one word. Um, I tweet about, uh, there's a lot of food photography. And the, uh, you know, odd social justice rant that I'll let myself indulge in. Uh, on the other side, it's Geek Girl Con, where I, uh, tweet throughout the day. And, um, our fifth convention is coming up October 10th and 11th. Tickets are on sale now. Or sorry, passes are on sale. Um, specifically at the convention, I'm really proud to announce that I will be on a couple of panels discussing Asian American representation. Um, uh, for, um, uh, sorry, I've just blanked, uh, Mad Max Fury Road and talking about, um, Asians broadly in media. And yeah, that's what, 
that's going on. I'm trying to be quick, so. <laughs> and John? Yeah, um, you can follow me on Twitter, John Sway, J-O-N-T-S-U-E-I. Um, you can check out my work in One Love Kill, which is coming out now. The issue three will be out on Wednesday. Um, and it's con season, so I will be at Heroes Con next weekend. Um, B3 Con with Keith. Uh, we're going to talk about some stuff. And um, I'll be at Comic-Con as well. So follow me on Twitter and then let you all know where I'm going to be at. And Alice. Oh, yeah. So uh, my Twitter handle is sfdirewolf, which refers to my love of all things Game of Thrones. And uh, later, actually, in about 45 minutes, I'll be live tweeting for new the Nerds of Color for the season finale of Game of Thrones. So if you want to stay on the Internet, um, <laughs> I'll be live tweeting in about 45 minutes. And you'll just see other kind of social justice slash disability tweets from my feed. So, and I think I mentioned my uh, Disability Visibility Project's website earlier. Thank you so, so much. This was a really great panel. A lot of conversation and discussion on Twitter. Folks were really psyched about your comments and your feedback. So thank you so much for just being so candid with your opinions um, and sharing your experiences with us. Uh, like I said, next week there will not be a podcast, uh, but the following week there will be, and it will be the last podcast um, for the summer, going on a break, and we'll be back sometime around September. I'll keep you updated via Twitter, um, but check us out on June 28th. That's when we'll have the next podcast. And thank you guys for listening, and uh, I, I'd like to do a part two on this. There, there was a lot more questions I had for you guys and we didn't get to, so um, hopefully you guys are interested in coming back for a part two. Absolutely. That's yes. right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Good night. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Finally, I'm finally.